My name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here today with us. We are grateful that you are joining with us and count it as a privilege that we get to gather together and worship God every week. God speaks through His Word to us for today. And this passage is no different. We've been going through passage in the book, passages in the book of Revelation. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at Babylon. We're going to continue that today, but we're going to see another aspect of what God has for us. How can we apply all of these areas of judgment? What are we to do with that? How do we respond to that? And we're going to see that from God's word today. So um, we're going to read the entire passage, so stick with me. Uh, keep, keep focused either in your Bible, on the screen, and let's listen to God's Word for what He has for us today. This is His holy, inspired Word. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with His glory. And He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come Out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen... I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, plagues shall come upon her in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, You mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of silver, of gold, pearls, jewels, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in her in in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out, As they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? 
And they threw dust on the heads. They wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will be Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flutes and players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, when we come to your word, so often it's, it's, it's unclear to us, Lord. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to see clearly. Lord, teach us to think deeply, to meditate on your word, to understand your word. Lord, thank you that your word is discernible by the very young, and yet, Lord, it, it, it is to be grappled with by all of us and will be a lifetime challenge. God, I I pray that your Holy Spirit would make your word alive today. Apart from you, God, we can't see clearly. So, Lord, open up our eyes to see. Let us behold the the glory of your word, Lord, the, the truth of your word. Would your truth penetrate our hearts and minds? Would you change us? Would you make us like your son, Jesus, as we pursue following you, Lord? And, and, and Lord, through your word, enable us to take up our cross and follow you with joy. God, I pray all of this by your Holy Spirit. Would you empower each of us to hear? Would you empower me to preach in Jesus' name? Amen. This passage is a little bit like a funeral. And as I was thinking about the passage, I was thinking about all the funerals I've been to. And not just as a Christian, but um, as a pastor, I, I, I have the privilege of attending a whole lot of funerals. I don't know if you've been to a funeral before or not, but funerals are a rare opportunity for reflection. Funerals are a chance to think about what's important, to think about what you're living for. Funerals are when we're confronted with the the brevity of life, the certainty of the end of life, and when we're faced with how are we living our life today. And that's a good response to a funeral. That's, That's a right response to a funeral. That's why a lot of churches back in the olden days would put They would put tombstones, they would put a graveyard right as you walk into the entrance of the church. And so you'd walk up and you'd walk past gravestones and so you'd be reminded of the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and yet look for hope in life in Christ and think about what you're living for. There was, funerals are meant to make you think, they're meant to have an effect on you. But I don't know if you've ever been at a funeral where people did not act appropriately, did not respond appropriately where at a funeral people didn't take it seriously, where they mocked it or they, they thought, well, you know, wonder what they're going to leave me. The appropriate response to, to a death, to a funeral, is, is not to think of what you could have gotten from that person to miss them because what they could give to you, what you got from them. But if you really love someone, you, you think about, okay, I, I, 
I miss them for who they were, the effect that they had. And in a sense, this passage is, is a depiction of the funeral of the city of Babylon. And what we see is the world's response, the world's reflection to the funeral, the death of Babylon. This is Babylon we've been seeing over the last several chapters in Revelation. We saw way back in Revelation 14, 8, the declaration that says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. The angel declared that back in Revelation 14, 8. And you're thinking, well, God, why spend so much time on this idea of Babylon? And if you've just joined us today and you've not been here with us, the city of Babylon, it's, it's symbolic, really, of of the city of man opposed to the city of God. It's, it's all the ways that, that man declares that he is God and God is not God and he will not be tolerated. In Revelation 16, 19, we saw that the city was judged again. We saw in Revelation 14, 8, the declaration of fallen, fallen is Babylon. The same thing we see here. In, in 16, 9, we saw that, that Babylon was split and the nations fell and God made them drink the cup of the fury of his wrath. And then last week, we focused on Revelation chapter 17. And we saw the city of man opposed to the city of God. And, and the question that has seemed to be on John's mind for us as here today is, 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 will you be captivated by Babylon or will you hear God's call? The, the question for Christians in John's day, these seven churches that John wrote to in Asia Minor was, will they be captivated by Babylon or will they hear the call of God when they see Babylon's judgment? We, we saw that the fall, the call of Babylon was like a siren's call. It's alluring. And there's so many things of, of the world, of the city of man that says that man does not need God. There's so many things that allure us, Right? We saw that the lust of the flesh can be alluring. We saw that the lust of the eyes can be alluring. Living for what people think of us, living for how we appear, how we come across, living for sensuality, living for pleasure, living for self-fulfillment. Those things can be alluring. And the application is what are you captivated by? What will you choose to be captivated by? And yet now again we find ourselves in chapter 18 coming back again to what he highlighted in chapter 14 and this angel makes this declaration about Babylon and you have to wonder why so much talk about Babylon? Why so much talk about the city of man opposed to the city of God? Why so much talk about the system that says that man is God and God won't be tolerated and, and does not need, man does not need God? I think the reason why is because Babylon is where the early church lived. But you know, Babylon is where we live. If you look around you, we live in Babylon. Now, not the literal city of Babylon. That's, that was done away with about 500 AD, really, as far as a mighty power. And, and so, since then, we've been living in this, this city of man as opposed to God that says that God won't be tolerated, that we don't need God, we're fine on our own. And all the churches in the early church were tempted with with that allure. You know, the Apostle John is the one who is receiving this vision, and it's no mistake because in his gospel and in his epistle as well, he addresses this whole idea that this vision is confronting. I want to show it to you from, so you understand the background of where John is coming from as he's receiving this vision, how God has spoken to John uniquely. John 15, 19 when Jesus spoke to his disciples, John wrote this down. He says, Jesus said, if you were of the world, if you were of the city of man, if you were of Babylon, the world would love its own. 
If you're of the world, the world would love its own. Be careful if you're loved by the world. He says, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The churches were experiencing this in the first century. They weren't of the world. They were trying to live for God, not live as as if they were part of the world, and the world was hating them. Later on in John 17, Jesus again, he says, I've, I've, I've given, he's praying for the disciples. He's praying to God, and he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. Now, some of us, we want to be taken out, Right? Some days, I don't know about you, but some days I feel like, Lord, would you just get me out of this place? It is messed up. But that's not Jesus' prayer. It's not to be our prayer. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus, he understood that tension we're going to experience every day as Christians living in the world. The authors of the New Testament, they encourage us, look, you're in the world, you're surrounded by the world, but live like you're not part of the world because Jesus is not part of the world, neither are you, so be discerning. Live in a way that pleases God, not the culture. Live in a way that takes up your cross, dies to those desires of the world, and follows Jesus. Now, John continued that same theme. In 1 John, in his letter, many, many years later, after the gospel was written, in 1 John 2.15, he says, Don't love the world or the things in the world. Now listen to this warning that John had for us back in 1 John. He says, If anyone loves the world, listen up, if anyone loves the world, here's the danger, the love of the Father is not in him. Now as Christians, that should give you pause, right? He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions or materialism, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. Now, do you hear echoes of what we've been looking at in Revelation? We've been looking at the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and this time we're looking at the pride in possessions. God's speaking to the very things he's been speaking to John all along. He says, but the world's passing away with his desires. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it's the last hour, he says in verse 18 of John 2, 1 John 2. It's the last hour as you heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Here's the point of the passage. We're living in Babylon. And how do we live when we see the judgment, the death of Babylon? How are we supposed to live? The main, the main idea, the main takeaway I think God would have for us, just like it was the main takeaway for, I believe, the early churches, is that faced with Babylon's judgment, how will you respond? Faced with Babylon's judgment, how will you respond? Seeing that the world is already considered, finalized, judged, how will you respond? How are you going to live in the world? How are you going to live, although we're living in Babylon, you know that Babylon is being judged and will pass away, and, is, and God actually already sees it as final, so how will we respond? Last week we saw what would you be captivated by, and then what would our response be? How will we respond in this specific area, desires of flesh? Now, I want to help you see why that's the main idea of the text. Whenever you come to passages in the Bible, you want to see where's this coming from? 
Whenever you hear a preacher preach, you want to ask, where is he getting that from the Bible? Is that really what the Bible is saying? So I'm going to take a step back just for a couple minutes and explain, hey, when you're reading the Bible, especially in Revelation, in different areas, you want to look and see where, how do we figure out the meaning of passages like this? Because if you just read this, it can be a little perplexing. There's so much talk about wealth and riches and kings and merchants and all this kind of stuff. It can be confusing, but it really hangs together very well. I want to show you a little outline here, if you can flip over to that. What we see here is this, this format of the passage. Now, you don't have to write this down. I just want to help you see where we're getting this in Scripture. Where are we getting the idea that face the Babylon judgment, how are you going to respond? Where, why is that the main emphasis? Well, what we see in this passage, 24 verses, we see the beginning. is a declaration of judgment. At the same time, at the end, is this frame at either end of the passage. Declaration of judgment in 1 to 3. Declaration of judgment 21 23. We see, now you can go to the next slide over. A command to come out. A Christian's response. And then we see in verse 20, a command to rejoice, a Christian's response here. Now the next slide, we see the reasons for judgment are given in, in 6 to 8. Really, it's a follow-on. You can go back to that one. And then 23 and 24, reasons for judgment. It's a follow-on to 1 and 3 and 23 and 24. Now go to the next one. And then we see the whole passage is kind of pointing, right? It's this frame that's going and narrowing, 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 pointing down to an emphasis in the middle here. It's the world's response to judgment, and we see three types of responses. We see the king's response in verses 9 to 10. We see, we see merchants' response, and we see sailors' response. Now, why is all that important? So what you can see from all of this is, okay, so this is about how do we respond when Babylon is judged? Do you get that? You can nod your head if, you see, if you're starting to see that. Okay, there we go. Excellent. So we're starting to see. This is all about how are we to respond? How does the world respond and how will we respond in light of the certain judgment of Babylon? How, how do we respond? How does the world respond in light of certain judgment? We see the world's response to judgment. We see the Christian's response to judgment. And the question you're meant to be left with is how will you respond? There's a contrast here between the world's judgment, the world's response to judgment, and, and the believer's response to judgment. How will you respond? When you understand that the world around you, let's, let's put this back into our context. Because Christians back in that day had to ask that question when they were, when they were faced with the idea of, okay, what, when Rome is judged, that's their Babylon of their day. When Rome is judged, how will they respond to that? What are they living for? Because they were tempted to live as if all of these guilds in that day really controlled things. And what they really needed to see is that, you know, we don't need to be so stressed out about money because Babylon's going to be judged. The whole world's wealth and systems of money will be judged. The question is, how will we live in light of that? How will we live in response to judgment? And the very first thing you see, if you go back to that other slide for a second, the very first thing you see is, is this declaration of judgment framing things. So what, what do we see from this passage? We need to see, first of all, that God's judgment of Babylon is certain and complete. That's the, that's the first point you can write down in your Bible after you've written down that, that main question. Face of Babylon's judgment, how you respond. Now, God's judgment of Babylon, it's certain and complete. You don't have to wonder it's that, that whether or not the world systems around you be judged. When you see the disparity in the economy around us, when you see poor and wealthy, when you see wealthy seem to get away with things that is, are unjust, you don't have to wonder. God's judgment, it's, it's certain and it's complete. 
There's this angel, he comes down, and he's got this bright glory. That's, that's a sign that he's imbued with the glory of God to carry out God's great and glorious judgment. And so he does that, and he comes out, and he calls out in verse 2, and he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It, it's not yet happened in one sense, but according to God, it's already happened. He's already decreed it. It's already finalized. His word is certain and complete, and the angel speaks of it as if it's past tense here. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Don't worry, your hope is not in the certainty of human economic forms. It's, it's not in, in, in the government. It's, it's not in, in human wealth. It's not in luxury. You can be certain that Babylon and all of the world's ways of dealing with wealth and the economy and, and riches, that will be judged. And, and right now, it might seem like the best way is to live for all that glitters, right? When you, when you see your neighbor roll up with a brand new car and you're thinking, man, that would be nice. Or when you see that your neighbor's taking vacations all the time, you're like, man, that would be great. Or when you see that they're getting a new job or, or when you hear the news of, of someone winning the lottery and you're just dreaming, wow, that would be incredible. What I could do, it would answer all of my problems. It would solve all my problems if I just won the lottery. I mean, we all, we all kind of think that a little bit, right? Have you, you ever thought that? You can raise your hand. Have you ever, you ever just dreamed a little bit about winning the lottery? I have. Especially when the guy in Simpsonville apparently won like one of the biggest ones. I was like, Wow. But what he exposes it for, this certain judgment, is an exposure of the truth of what Babylon is. It, it seems glittery. It seems alluring. It seems impressive. It seems what we should be living for. And now look in verse 2. Here's the reality. It says, no, fallen is Babylon. And it might look like Babylon is great and beautiful and what you're supposed to be living for. But he says, she's become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. Is that what you want? Is that what you really want? A dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, every unclean bird, every unclean detestable beast. This is the ultimate corruption. And what he's saying is Babylon's fall is certain. And by the way, she's already so corrupt. Don't be confused with this veneer. Don't be confused with, like Jesus put it, this, this whitewashing on the outside of a tomb. Don't be confused when you see, wow, that's a great looking house, but inside it is just rot and demons and unclean things. Its judgment is certain because of those things. And it has been ever since the time of Isaiah, back in Isaiah 21.9. The fall of Babylon was prophesied way back then. He's become, behold, here come riders, horsemen of Paris, fallen, fallen as Babylon. All the carved images, what is that? Idolatry of her gods, he's shattered to the ground. What, are, what is one of the biggest idols of Babylon, the city of man, it's this idea that, that we're self-sufficient, this idea that if we just have enough money, if we just have enough luxury, if we just have enough things, we'll be satisfied. That's the idolatry of Babylon that's to be certainly judged. And what is it full of? It, it seems appealing, but it's full of demons. It's haunted with every unclean thing. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, he puts it this way, he says, today Babylon looks to John's readers like a confident and beautiful queen. The city teeming with energetic activity, overflowing with good things of life. And, and doesn't it seem that way to us sometimes too when you think, wow, man, they're really successful. 
They've got it all. They've got, they don't have any bills. They don't have to worry about anything. They live in luxury. They have everything they could ever want and need. Man, they got a pool, whatever it is you dream of. He says, in reality, however, Babylon is even now a hag, a hollow husk, the haunt of demons, defilement, and death. He says, that inward reality will become outwardly visible at Babylon's fall when her mask is torn away. Her, her, her revealing will be certain. The reason why Babylon's become a haunt, a dwelling place for all these unclean, demonic things is because you look in verses uh, three and four there, verse three, for all the nations have drunk the passions, the passion of her sexual immorality. Now listen, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and then explains what this immorality is in this context. It says, and her merchants of the earth have grown rich from what? From the power of her luxurious living. The Bible here is addressing something. It's addressing that human system that says that what we really need is money. What we really need is wealth. What we really need is this luxurious living. What we need is we need to be rich, and that would solve our problems. It's one of the tools that Babylon uses, the devil uses to blind, to deceive, to reality. Riches are deceitful, seeking after those riches and wealth. It, as a God, it leads to all kinds of immoralities. And that's, that's what this, this passage is addressing is that particular pride of possessions, the, the idea of pursuing wealth as the answer to our problems. Now, you might be thinking, I don't have that issue. Really, what, what happens when, when your money's taken from you? What if things are tight? Where does your heart go? What about when someone else prospers? How do you feel about it? What, what about if you don't have money, do you, do you feel like God is somehow judging you? Do you feel like this is God being mean to you? Do you feel like if I just had enough to do this, I could pay off my mortgage, I could do these different things, and, and things would be better? Is, is, money, is money being used as a tool to influence your thinking, your vision? Well, we see that this is the epitome of, of self-indulgence and arrogance is what she's being judged for. This judgment will be complete because it, it's Babylon lives in luxury. Look at, look at verse 7. It says, she glorifies herself. She glorifies herself. Instead of glorifying God for all the good gifts that, that Babylon, the city of man, receives, what does mankind tend to do? We get the good gifts from God, the, the provision of God, and instead of glorifying God for those gifts, Romans tells us, we glorify ourselves, the city of man, Babylon glorifies themselves. So look in verse 7. She glorified herself and what? And lived in luxury. Oh, so this passage is nailing something. It's nailing that idea of trusting in riches, trusting in possessions, trusting in wealth. The allure of that. And so why is Babylon certainly judged? She glorified in herself and lived in luxury. Now, is it wrong to have good things? No. Is it wrong to glorify in yourself and to heap luxury and be self-indulgent? Yes. He says, so because of that, luxurious living, glorifying yourself, give her a measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen. I'm no widow. I've got everything I need. I've, I've been provided for. I've got children. Mourning I shall never see. And that's the same thing that the church in Laodicea is being addressed for. You, you say that you're rich. 
You say that you've got this splendid clothes. You say that you don't need anything, but the reality is you are wretched and poor and blind. That's how Jesus addressed this idea of self-sufficiency and trusting in riches as if they needed nothing because of their own wealth. And he's addressing that same issue in all of our hearts. Look in verse 8. For this reason, their plagues come in a certain day, a single day, death and mourning and famine should be burned up. The judgment for this way of living, trusting in luxury and riches is certain because God is mighty. And that word for the Lord who is, is mighty, it's like the strong man. Because God's like the rock. He's mighty. He's going to judge. And their great pride shall have plagues come in a single day. Babylon will be burned up a fire. Why? Because God's the king who is mightier than this queen bee. And it's certain judgment. Look in verse 21. Skip down to verse 21. This angel gives an object lesson. I, I used to love it when I was a kid and I'd go to Sunday school and i get object lessons because for me, I, I was a very visual learner. And so we have a visual picture here of the certainty of God's judgment. This angel, he's talking to John, and then this mighty angel, he picks up a stone like a giant millstone, and he takes a stone and he throws it into the sea. So John's like, what's up with that? And he says, well, this is the object lesson. So will Babylon's certain sinking judgment be thrown down with violence and be no more. Just like this millstone I just threw in the sea. And there'll be no more. And a millstone, it... it it's a symbol of, of provision, of food, of sustenance at the basic level. And so all of Babylon, the basic level, from everything. And he goes on to explain that. Everything from harpists, musicians, and, and, and flutists, and craftsmen, and, and the mill, and no light of the lamp, and the bridegroom. There's, there's going to be no more economic hope in Babylon. One day, all of the economic hopes of Babylon will be judged. You get that? What an object lesson. The city's going to sink as quickly and completely as a great millstone goes to the bottom of the sea. And, and the interesting thing is everything's quiet after that. There's not a lot of noise. It's the silence that closes in on Babylon's death. The city man will be no more. And the second major thing that we see is that in the middle passage here, the What's the world's response? What's the world's response? In the very middle, we, we saw that. What's, what's the world's response? We see three different responses there. And, and what we see is that the world is blinded by money. The world is blinded by money and doesn't respond rightly to judgment. The world is, is supposed to see God's judgment and respond, but the world is blinded by the desire for riches, the deceitfulness of riches, the pride of possessions. The world is blinded by money. And we see three different kinds of responses. Look down at verse 9. It says, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. Here, here's how I know that they're blinded by money. They, it says, they committed sexual immorality, lived in luxury with her. They'll weep, they'll wail. Now look in verse 10. It says, here's what they say. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come. They're, they're saying, alas, judgment's come, but we can't live in luxury anymore. Look in verse 11, the merchants of the earth. They weep, they mourn. Now look in verse 11, it says why they weep and mourn. Since no one buys cargo from them anymore. So they're mourning because of their economic loss. The kings are mourning because they're, they've lost luxurious living. The, the merchants here, they're mourning since nobody buys their cargo. It's like standing around at a funeral and talking about how this has affected you and not actually mourning the loss of the person who's died. 
wow, man, I, I don't know what we're going to do for money now. People in verse 11 to 13, it's clear, they indulge themselves at the expense of others as well. He says, nobody's going to buy our cargo anymore. That's why they're mourning and weeping. The world's blinded by money. They're not seeing the death of Babylon is meant to make them think about what they're living for. Instead, they're thinking about, how is this going to affect me? They're blinded by money. Now, interesting, you have to look down and say, okay, why in the world do we have a mention here in verse 12 and 13? Look at that long list for a second. Look at the long list in verse 12 and 13. Why does, why does the angel, why does Jesus, why does John, why do they emphasize 28 different types of cargo? Why, what is that all about? These were the symbols of the ultimate in luxury in that day. The ultimate of self-indulgence. And Rome heaped on themselves all of these things. And they did that at the expense of the nations they got it from. They did that on the backs of human souls. Because they didn't care about the world's suffering. The, the city of man just cares about its own indulgence. Cares about how they're affected. And we see kind of heightens it to the point where slavery, it's the, the epitome of this ruthless pursuit of self-indulgence and pleasure and wealth and self-gratification at the expense of others. And then the question you, you should be having in your mind is, what would I be willing to do to get rich? What am I willing to compromise to get rich? Where am I tempted to acquire and accumulate luxury and wealth and riches at the expense of others? In verse 14, he says, the fruit for which your soul longed. What's the fruit that they're so longed? They were longing after riches and they were blinded by them. What does your soul long for? Does your soul long for these fruits of great foods and wealth and riches and fine clothes? All kinds of costly wood. And it's like talking about cabinetry wood, you know. Do you just want like the best, most beautiful things in life? You want to accumulate a lot of cattle and sheep and horses, so a lot of cars, a lot of whatever you want to look at that as in today's equivalent, chariots. What's the fruit for which your soul has longed? Don't be blinded by the things of the world. All the longings of the human soul apart from God, all the things that humanity longs for to satisfy, for comfort, for security, indulgence, peace, satisfaction to be taken away. All your luxuries and delicacies, all the splendid things of the world, all the elegancies and fine clothes, never to be found again is what it says. And how the merchants respond, they stand far off. And then look in verse 16, it says, Alas, alas, the city was clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, adorned with golden jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, in verse 17, all this wealth has been laid waste. They are all lamenting the loss of wealth, of money, and riches because they've been blinded by these things. Look, look down at the, the second half of verse 17. This is shipmasters. These are people who are engaged in trade. Maybe, maybe today this would be the, the version of Wall Street or transportation industry, both of them. Since the trade is on the sea, they stood far off. They cried out and they said, what city was like this city? Look down at verse 19. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. What is this whole passage pointing at? It's pointing at the fact that the world, Babylon's system, it lives for wealth, for riches, as if that's hope, and the world's blinded by that. 
and a single hour shall be laid waste. And yet what we see as we come to the latter part in verse 20, what we see is that there are some responses. There are appropriate responses and reactions to the death of Babylon. We see both verse 4 and verse 20. And in verse 20, it's something shocking. You see that there's rejoicing. Vern Poitras, he says, the powerful weep to see the end of the power to exercise wickedness, but a proper reaction is one of rejoicing. Modern societies teach us to comfort, the love comfort and to abhor all destruction, but this modern attitude is nothing but a false sentimentality. Wickedness needs destruction. It's primarily an offense to God, but also to those who are oppressed by it. The source of all of their distress for the world is their loss of riches and trade and transport and wealth and luxury. But God calls us to see clearly, see clearly in Babylon's death. When, when you see the funeral of Babylon being depicted, we need to see clearly what God would have us take away from that. And, and, and how are Christians commanded? They're commanded to see clearly. Christians are commanded to see clearly. That's really the, the third, the final, final emphasis in the passage. We're commanded to see clearly, and we're commanded to see clearly in two ways, to come out. To come out in verse 4. Look back in verse 4. Then I heard from heaven another voice saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Now, what sins are being identified in this passage? The sins of seeking after wealth and luxury, the pride of possessions. Come out from her lest you take part in her sins. And if you take part in sins, if you're part of the world, if you take part in the things of the world, he says, lest you share in her plagues. Same thing that the Apostle John heard from Jesus earlier. It's called to come out. Don't come to terms with the city. In that day, in the first century, they had to think, okay, wait a minute. If I just go to the temple and worship with them, and I don't really say anything, I kind of cross my fingers, and I participate together in this idolatry, then they're going to give me business. If, if I just do the things they're asking me to do, if I say that Caesar is God and, and not God really, but I cross my fingers, and I don't really mean it, then I know that I'll get those contracts that I've been looking for. And that was the very real things that they faced in that day. But that's like living with a sleeping mask on. It blocks out the light. Christian, how are you living today? Are are you living like you have a sleeping mask on? It's going to keep you from seeing clearly. Do you have this mask of riches and luxury and wealth that blinds you and lull you to sleep? Have you put that mask on? Or or will you come out, as verse 4 says? And then not only come out, but rejoice. Don't, Don't come to terms with the city. Sure, riches may come if you go along with the ways of the world, but if you go along with the ways of the world, you share in their plagues. Don't make a peace treaty with Babylon because you're going to find out that one day you're really at war with God. Don't take part in her sins so that you won't take part in her plagues. Leon Moore says, compromise with, with worldliness, it's fatal. Do you see that? Compromising with worldliness is fatal. God's people must, while playing their full role in the community, hold themselves aloof from what's being involved in being worldly-minded. And in this passage, what is God addressing? Being worldly-minded is thinking that riches, that money, that luxury, that things will solve our problems. What do you think? 
Do you act and feel as if riches, money will solve your problems? If luxury is, I can breathe easy, or maybe you're already there and you're just comfortable because you have riches or a good 401k or retirement package. This is not a new call. Come out, just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, 11. Depart, depart. Touch no unclean thing. Purify yourselves. It's the same thing that Ephesians 5 and the Apostle Paul says. He says, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Let's, church, expose that in our own hearts. Expose that temptation to riches, to, to look to trust in the things that the world is blinded by. And let's take the blinders off our eyes. It says in verse 5, our sins are heaped as high as heaven. Babylon, it's this kind of irony. He, Babylon was trying to build this tower to see how impressive they were. We've got so much wealth, we can build this huge tower. God says, no, I'm not going to do that. But now what do they really build? They built this tower of sin. And this tower of sin, one of the tools to build that tower of sin is trusting in riches and wealth and luxury and heaping those self-indulgent things on themselves. Second command we see is not just come out, but to rejoice. You think, that's a little weird, isn't that a little morbid? The reason it's commanded to rejoice is not vindictive. It's, it's a rejoicing over God's justice being done. See, to be a Christian in the first century, it meant to stake your entire life on living for Christ and living the Christian faith. Being a Christian in the first century meant that it cost you something. Especially these seven churches that John was writing to in Revelation, it cost them something and it meant if they were bold in living for Jesus they would have a conflict with the world around them it was not a question every one of these churches they would face a conflict with the world around them based on how they lived in relation to riches luxury money possessions they would stick out if they did not worship what the world worshiped They'd be ostracized, penalized in their trade, in their business. They'd, they'd be punished, and some were put, to, put in jail or put to death. If all they had to live for in this was this world, then they, their, their life was in vain. But the judgment of Babylon was cause for rejoicing, because why? It, it's, it's God's stamp saying, no, this world is not all there is to live for. That's why we rejoice in the judgment of the world. It's not because we're, we're, we want to see people be punished. It's because we see, no, God is showing us that this world is not what it's all about. This world is not all there is to live for. And that's what we rejoice in. Thanks be to God. When, when money is taken away or we're penalized or when there's consequences for living like a Christian, not living for the world, thanks be to God. He's judged the world to show us that this is not our hope. And you catch an oddly worded phrase at the end of verse 20. Look down your Bibles at the end of verse 20. He's talking about judgment. Very oddly worded phrase there. It says, for God has given judgment. Well, the next two words, say them out loud. For you against her. That's a very oddly worded phrase. God has given judgment for you against her. It's meant to be an encouragement. Did you catch that? This is for your good. Wrongs are put to right by God. God's city will triumph. No more will there be temptations to false idols, worship, whispering in our ears that we need to bow down and worship wealth, worship riches, live for the things of the world. No more false satisfaction. 
No more hearing the lies about the world, ourselves, about God. No more believing the lies. No more opposition to God. This is for us. It's for you rejoicing. It's for you that God's given judgment against Babylon. And in verse 23, we see that not even lamps will shine. The voice of the bride and bridegroom will be heard no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. People who accumulated wealth were seen as the great ones, and that's what Babylon is punished for. All the nations were deceived by sorcery. It's sorcery to believe that our hope is in riches and wealth and money and possessions. That's sorcery. A city of man will be no more like a sunken millstone at the bottom of the sea. It's not going to rise again. No more seductive songs. No more rejoicing in sin. This is good news. This is to be rejoiced in. No more singing the beauties of the world as if the world is what we're living for. No more craftsmen, food, mills, production, lamplights, marriage. It's all symbolic of economic productivity of the world, trusting in their own ways. And what we see here is judgment that we're supposed to rejoice. God, thank you that you show that trusting in the ways of the world is futile, but trusting in you is sure. There's no pretense of life apart from God. No pretending that we can find satisfaction apart from God. That's for our good. It's for you. No more deception about life apart from God. For you, judgment was given by God against her. How will you respond when you're faced with Babylon's judgment? Vern Poitras says, says, we might react to the glamour of 17.4 with a shudder. How cheap, how tawdry. I don't know if I have this quote or not, actually. So we might react to the glamour of 17 for the shutter. How cheap, how tawdry. Because that is what we think is expected of us. When you saw back in chapter 17, oh my goodness, well, that's so cheap, so tawdry. It looks like you know, this prostitute. We wouldn't be attracted to that. He says, but in practice, in daily life, the pearls and the purple, the golden cup have an awful fascination, don't they? Let's be honest. In practice? Yeah, we, we understand that the world is like a prostitute, and we're like, oh, that's nasty. This, this, this ugly prostitute of chapter 17 who's adorned in all these things, decked out with this cup of abominations and drinking the blood of the saints. And we're grossed out, but in practice, in daily life, the pearls, the purple, the golden cup of an awful fascination. You need to inspect your own life. The world is powerful, he says. Its message is attractive. We know what it's like to be like the bird held by the glittering eye of the snake. This is addressing professing Christians who, through the wiles of this queen prostitute, they're being seduced by Satan to abandon their loyalty to Jesus and go after riches, just subtly, just a little bit. That's why we need a spell of even greater authority. We we need something to be spoken that's greater than that that, that spell that Babylon has over us. The second angel comes out, he, he breaks the spell, he declares judgment. But how do you know, Right? How do you know? How how do you know if you're living for the things of Babylon? How do you know if you're living for the allure? At a funeral, what's your response? You know, is it what will we get? Is is response to Babylon's funeral? Hey, I wonder what what I got left in the will. You know, wonder what I'm going to get from it all. How do you know if you're living for? These luxuries of self-indulgence, money, possessions, the pride of life, pride of possessions. 
well, I've got some questions that are meant to diagnose our hearts. These aren't meant to be legalistic, but meant to us to inspect our own hearts with the people who know you, with your family, would they say you're generous? Not foolish, but generous. When you think personally of your money, when you think about your income, your savings, your 401k or your lack of it, your retirement or lack thereof, your home, do you think of all of those things as yours? Or do you think of, God, I'm just a steward. And God, what would you have me do with my money and possessions? How, how do you think of what you have? Are you constantly planning and strategizing? And is God a part of those plans and strategies? Is he the primary place you go to begin with when you begin to plan? Do you give regularly? It's just a litmus test, man. Do you ever give when it means denying yourself of something you want? Have you ever given that way? If not, you might wonder why. Why haven't I ever given in a way that it means I'm going to have to deny myself something that I actually want? Do you seek to serve and give to others out of what God's blessed you with financially? Or do you seek to accumulate? When you first get a raise, your first thought, hey, what am I going to buy? Is your first thought, God, how can I use this money for your glory instead of self-glorification? Do you grumble when you're asked to show hospitality? I know I'm stepping on my toe here, okay? I'm stepping all of our toes here. This is, this is what Scripture is meant to do. It's meant to affect our hearts, provoke us. A funeral is meant to make us think about what we're living for. Do you grumble when you're asked to show hospitality because it's going to cost you something? When you carry out deals, you ever buy something like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever, and you carry out a deal, are you seeking the good of the person you're doing with the deal with too? Or are you only seeking your own good? how we're supposed to live. We're not supposed to live as a way to, hey, we're going to rip people off so we can get things. Hey, how can we be fair and exemplify what it looks like to live for God in all things? You just try to get the lowest price or do you say, you know what, I want to make sure I I get a fair price for them and I I both. When you hire somebody to work for you, do you pay, pay them a fair wage or do you try to pay them as little as possible? If you have employees, do you, do you pay them the bare minimum? Or do you say, you know what, I want to pay them a good living wage so that they can provide for their family. You ever hide income on your taxes? Would you compromise your Christian witness to make sure you make money? If somebody you're doing business with says, I hate Christians, I'm so glad you are not one, what do you say? You just continue doing business with them? Are you aware, if, if you're aware that your company has unethical and moral practices or is deceitful, why are you still working for them? Now, I'm not saying that, and to some degree, every company of the world is, is, is not biblical, but when there's gross injustice or there's unethical, immoral practices, deceitful practices, do you stay there because you're getting paid well? If you're asked to do something unethical but you knew it would pay off and nobody would find out, would you do it? God's after our hearts in passages like this. He was after the hearts of the early church. He's after our hearts. They were faced with economic uncertainty and economic persecution. They needed to see clearly. And the death of Babylon was meant to be a wake-up call. Their hearts were revealed. Our hearts are revealed. How will they respond? How do we respond? It's a radical call to live for Jesus. Not riches, not the world's rewards, but to live for Jesus. 
It's a call to take up your cross to follow him. What happens when you don't have money? When it looks like you might not have enough? Is there anxiety, worry, fear? Why? Is it the source of your hope? Do you believe it'll solve your problems? Do you ever hide it if you don't have money? Do you hide that fact from other people because you're embarrassed and ashamed by that? Why? Do you feel the need to keep up appearances when you're, still, when you're lacking financially and so you make foolish financial decisions because you want to have the appearance of wealth and luxury? These are all real common temptations, by the way, for all of us. Every one of us is tempted in these ways. If you think you're not tempted in these ways, then I'd encourage you to think deeply. You're ever embarrassed by your lack of money? Do you feel like it's God's judgment? Do you feel like God's displeased with you because you're struggling? How do you respond if somebody else asks you for money or wants your money? And then why do you respond that way? You know, when God addresses this area of money in the Bible, like today, how is your heart doing with that? When a pastor talks about money, does it make you really uncomfortable because you're like, he wants to get mine? Or, is this, or do you see this for what this really is? God revealing our hearts that we live for him and not live for riches. And you, do you protect it because you hope in it? How about husbands and wives when your spouse spends your money or spends the family money? How do you react? You're like, oh man, what are they doing that for? Or your kids or whoever else. Do you get anxious? Do you make your career choices based solely on money or primarily based on money? Is it a source of comfort? Maybe you have money and you're like, no, I'm good. I'm good in all these ways. But what would happen if you didn't? Are there areas where you become self-indulgent? God's calling us to live as strangers. We're called to response. Come out, right? Come out, live as strangers, rejoice in the fact that that money's not our hope. Come out, rejoice in the judgment of Babylon, that money's not our hope. Live as strangers. I'm going to close with, uh, there's a song, 10th Avenue North sings. It's called Strangers Here. And then um, the band can come up and we'll, we'll sing. He says, I know you're tired of the hurt, the heartache. You feel like giving in. You feel like walking away. I know it's difficult feeling so out of place. This is not how it's going to be. Your pain's temporary. We're strangers here. It's all right if you can't stop the tears that you cry because someday we'll touch the face of God. The sorrow will disappear. Until then, we're strangers here. It's hard to hear if you want to keep chasing this broken world that only keeps your heart breaking. That's hard to hear. If you keep chasing this broken world that only keeps your heart breaking. So if you're scared because you think you're missing out, this is not the ending. No, this is not the ending. We're strangers here. This is not the homeland. We can see the lights from here. He's making us a city where there are no fears. And it's drawing near. Until then, we're strangers here. We're just strangers here. Come out and rejoice in your true hope. Amen. Let's pray and have the band come up and we'll sing. Father, I pray that you would help us diagnose, discern, see clearly our own hearts. Lord, not out of morbid introspection, but Lord, so that we would not be in bondage and slavery, that we would not submit ourselves again 
to sin, that we would not submit ourselves again to that false master of money, riches, and wealth, that we would, we would live for what's eternal. We would live for your true wealth. God, I pray that we would see the wealth that you've given us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have every riches, that you have every spiritual rich you've given to us, Lord, that you've given us all the wealth we could ever need in Christ Jesus. And I pray that we would live for those things and we would set aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles and we would press on towards the goal, the upward prize of the call in Christ Jesus where we will feast with you.